0: yes i remember everything i know who i am i am the doctor i am the doctor
1: You're listening to Pieces of Eighth, the Doctor Who podcast that's hopefully not late for a very important date. We are carrying on in our trip through those sections of the Doctor Who universe, or indeed could it be a multiverse, given that there's all these different bits and bobs going on featuring the Eighth Doctor. And uh, they're all still played by that lovely fella, Paul McGann, or at least they look like him, or they sound like him. I'm Kenny Smith.
2: I'm Matt Michael, standing in for the much-missed Becca Chapman as she recovers from COVID. Well soon, Becca, please. You join us as we resume our quest to feature the Eighth Doctor's exploits, whether on screen, in books, novellas, forecast audio, short stories, comics, animations, talking books, cuddly toys, or anything else we can lay our eyes, ears and hands upon.
1: Yeah, or grubby little protuberances, if you want to be Scottish about it.
2: Oh, I wouldn't dare.
1: Okay, better not. Matt, (laughs) lovely to see you again. How are you?
2: I'm good, thanks, Kenny. Good to see you again. Looking very tan from Lanzarote.
1: (laughs) Well, one tries, one tries. It's just I have a naturally dark skin complexion and I take a tan rather well. Of course, something. (laughs) All praise to Logar. I managed to avoid the numismaton gas, though. That's the good thing because that could have been problematic and I could have come back.
2: Very euthanic qualities. Mm. Should have bottled some.
1: Yeah, unfortunately I've come home and I'm only about five inches tall. So it's a bit of a pain that way. But oh well, I look like a doctor Who action figure now, so. Sure
2: so Nicola Bryant doesn't swat you with a shoe.
1: Mm, no, no, I'm I'm not a foot person. <laughs> <laughs> We'll, we'll go slightly higher for my area of interest. But yes, let's chat about some Eighth Doctor news that's been revealed since last we spoke. We have recently heard that there's two new Eighth Doctor adventure sets on the way at the end of the year. Continuing the adventures of the Doctor, Liv and Helen with What Lies Inside and Connections, which is going to bring us one, two, three, four, five new stories to look forward to. We've got Paradox of the Daleks by John Dorney. And The Dolby Spook by Lauren Mooney and Stuart Pringle, writers of the brilliant The Grey Mare, which I listened to last December while I was out for a walk on a cold, windy, snowy evening, and it was bloody terrifying. And in Connections, we've got Here Lies Drax by John Dorney, The Love Vampires by James Kettle, but that sounds cool, and Albie's Angels by Roy Gill. So are you excited?
2: I am. I think um, I'm always excited for some new Paul McGann audio news and it's going to be interesting to see how his voyages back out into the universe sort of take off after he's been stuck in 2020 for for um 16 episodes
1: I think it's fascinating to see that there's some again it's always good to see some new names in the writing mix particularly Lauren and Stuart who recently get married at the end of May actually so congratulations to them and and they're a lovely lovely couple I had a good chat with them for Vortex and obviously there's some interest in Here Lies Drax so the return yeah. of that naughty Time Lord fella, that would be quite an interesting one just to see what they do with Drax this time around
2: uh, Yeah, and, and by John Dorney who also wrote "The Trouble with Drax the fourth Doctor um, adventure with um Lala Ward and a whole host of um, Drax guest stars so I'm, I'm very much looking forward to see what Drax did next i've got a real soft spot for drax because um, i was born on the day that drax was born on tv oh. 1979 episode five of the armageddon factor is my birth episode so oh that's brilliant yeah I feel, I feel a little affinity with drax, isn't yeah
1: that's is brilliant i love it i was 11 days after to we regenerated into Tom Baker. So I am a child of the fourth doctor era. So it's quite scary because I was thinking about this because my Katie is a child of the Tennant era. She was um, conceived during the Eccleston era. And don't go, don't think about it, please. But yeah, she was conceived during the Eccleston era and then born in February, by which point that David has become the doctor and obviously had one episode out and it's just. It's really scary to think that how long ago that is now. You're talking 16 years. What? How can that be?
3: You've
2: got hard. I
1: know. It's fun. Hey, we've um, we've just mentioned the name of Roy Gill as one of the writers of with the story there for Albies Angels. And today we're going to discuss another one of his scripts as we take our first step into the world of Stranded, the recently concluded Big Finish box set series that saw the Doctor, Liv and Helen trapped on Earth as the badly damaged TARDIS restored itself. So Matt, when Stranded as an arc was first announced, what did you think about it as it was effectively stripping things back after the incredible excesses of space and time drama with Time Lords, Daleks and everything else and Dark Eyes, Doom Coalition and Ravenous? I was
2: quite pleased actually i think because i think you put your finger on it i think dark eyes team coalition uh, and then ravenous had kind of pushed that sort of big space time twisting epics probably about as far as you would probably want them to go um without a bit of a breather and a bit of a change of direction so I think it came at the right moment um, to do something smaller and more grounded and I think serendipity meant that it was happening at the moment that we were all effectively sort of stranded and, and locked down in our own little alternative universes while the world healed itself. So I think it through pure chance it coincided perfectly with the way that the world was in 2020, 2021. And I think you know that that plays through into the final episode of the of the whole of the whole series. So yeah, I, I, I welcomed it. I think it was the right thing to do in the right call. And actually, you know, I think I wouldn't have been upset had, the idea being even more pushed and, and the TARDIS you know d- didn't work at all for 16 episodes because i think there are a couple of stories that were set in the present day that were really kind of powerful and 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 interesting and different um and quite quite um unusual for both the eighth doctrine i think for just the doctor who in general so i i really enjoyed the the whole series
1: definitely agree i think it was uh i think it was as you say it was needed I think when you've got four masters uh, and they live in, in the one story and there's nowhere that you can really go after that in terms of how do you big that one up and unless of course you're getting like the ultimate coalition of Daleks, Cybermen, Ice Warriors, Yeti, Quarks, the Trods, basically, dravens. every yeah, Dra- you love your Dravens, And uh, getting them all together to have a mega coalition and then you're effectively having them unite in a mega army so no I think stripping it back and giving us good character driven stories and a wonderfully diverse group representing pretty much everybody today in Britain which is great and it was just uh, some great characters brilliantly played and absolutely delighted we've got the chance to actually talk about one of them now.
3: Yeah
2: so we're going to talk about a story from the second set called Unit Dating and Kenny, can you tell us what the notes on the Big Finish website have to say
1: about it? Absolutely. And the doctor dips into his past to help TARDIS repairs in the present, and he joins him on a trip to UNIT. In the 1970s, young soldier Ron Winters has just met lab assistant Tony Clare. But in 2020, they need Liv and Helen's help when their memories start falling apart. Now, let's hear the trailer for the whole box set as we don't actually have an individual one, although maybe I should go and make one up. No, it'll be easier just to go with this proper official Big Finish one. From Big Finish Productions, The Eighth Doctor Adventures, Stranded 2. I've got her back, my TARDIS. Hello, old girl. The
4: TARDIS is starting to heal.
1: A paradox took hold. We could be looking at a whole new aberrant timeline. And the best thing I can do to explain, Tanya, is to take you with me. Really? You're you're inviting me along?
2: This stuff. Time travel. It's a bit of a balancing act, like one of those 3D puzzle games. You don't want to pull out the wrong piece in case the entire universe stops existing completely. Which is something I've literally seen happen. This is unbelievable! Get us out of here, we'll be blown to bits! Oh,
4: Grace, everybody, Grace! It's time we told them about who we really are. We need to find the right moment. I wonder what the Brig would make of all this. I don't want to get a bus home when there's a time machine right here.
1: Well, we all have to be somewhere. This is as good a place as any. Hmm? Big finish. We love stories. He's a big
0: chap over six foot, built like a gorilla. Unusually strong and surprisingly hairy.
1: Oh, hurrah, it's a great big space ape. Let's get this over with then. So at this point, I should declare an interest as Roy Gill, the writer, has been a friend of mine for some 20 plus years, so I'm going to be obviously biased in favour of this one, so I just thought I'd better put that out there now. Stranded's a story which, as said just there, reflects life in the 21st century, so how did you enjoy unit dating with that wonderfully brilliant title?
2: I think it's a really sweet, lovely story. I think there's a lot of fun had with the title. Um, I think there's like a, a moment where someone says 19 and then they get cut off before they can finish saying what year... It's in i think it's the right scale for the stranded series so i mentioned obviously that i, I would have welcomed you know more stories just say in the present day this one does take place across different time zones but it's still very intimate and it's not sort of going back to battle dinosaurs which is what andy is worried is going to happen it is much more Sort of constrained than that and I really enjoyed it and I thought it had a very fun way of introducing a couple of bits of continuity um, and the wider Doctor Who universe into uh, stranded One was the Ogrons and I thought the Ogron in the story was was great. I think Big Finish have done some really fun work in the Paul McGann episodes with Ogrons as that brilliant planet of the Ogrons which is We've got John Coulshaw playing a doctorified Ogron, which is brilliant. Um, an Ogron that sounds like John Pert, which amuses me immensely as well. And this Ogron reminded me a little bit of that. So it's on to a winner straight away. And then the other one is obviously John Coulshaw again playing um, Brigadier Lethbridge-Stewart, who is a presence in this story. It's not about the Brigadier and it's not he's not the sort of main character. He He is quite... It's a cameo, I think you would say, rather than a sort of major role, but it's an important sort of cameo. So it's nice to see those little bits of the mythology creeping in without the story having to be about, you know, the brigadier fighting the that's not That's not really what the story's about at all.
1: Yeah. I particularly like the stuff when the doctor gets to chat to the brigadier and just to tell him how much he admires and respects him as a friend. It, because that's something that I've always found uncomfortable when watching some of the be stuff is just how rude the Doctor is to the Brigadier and it's not even in that sort of the friendly way that you get rudeness it's actually outright rudeness and it's it just I don't, I don't like that I just think the Doctor should be more more friendly and matey given that the Brigadier sort of sorted him out with a house and home and giving him equipment to repair the TARDIS. Although, obviously, he doesn't really repair it because he's a bit rubbish at it. But that's always the thing that I've always sort of found about the Pertweera that I didn't like was the the rudeness to the Brig because the Brig is just such a good guy. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. I think, as you say, the Ogron stuff is great fun with the time loop going round. And there's that brilliant bit about Joe Grant who's uh, giving the soldiers the eye and it is just the the misunderstanding of obviously being Josephine rather than Joseph. And I think that's really, really funny. I think having Andy
2: posing as Joe Grant, presumably with an E, is is brilliant, and it's so Andy as well. He he always slightly gets the wrong end of the stick, which is why he's such a, I think, a good foil. Is is that he's his heart's in the right place, but his brain isn't.
1: That absolutely sums them up perfectly. I, I think it's Tom Price, just such a brilliant performer. He brings so much charm and likability to the part. And even in in Miracle Day, it's not particularly enjoyable to watch at times. It's very very dark and unpleasant. And um, you've got Andy fighting back against the system, and I just love that. That's to be honest, those are probably some of my favourite scenes across mm. those ten episodes. When he's the one who stands up and just like, no, I'm not going with this particularly. Given the way that our current government is going with trying to override law and do what it likes, you actually do find that there are good people who will always stand up and I really like Andy because of that.
2: Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. I think there's a sort of earlier Torchwood episode, Adrift, where he's trying to do the right thing by a mother who's lost her her son. And again, he he pulls Gwen into that investigation by just relentlessly focusing on doing the right thing and you know just for ordinary people it's not about fighting aliens or at least at that point he doesn't think it's about fighting aliens it's about people who need help and Andy feeling really strongly that he's there to, to help people he's, he's yeah. a lovely character
1: I would love to see him pop up in uh Russell T's new run I oh, think it'd yeah. be great to see him appear and the fact that you obviously we know that Russell knows what Big Finish are doing since he suggested they use Andy and uh yeah, wouldn't it be nice to just get a wee reference it? oh, it's another one of you, is it? Um, <laughs> uh, something along those lines, obviously, you've a lot more Welsh than me. But Well, you know, th- this,
2: this um, set means that David Tennant definitely visited Andy um, at the end of time. He was yes. definitely one of the people that he paid a visit to.
1: Now, there's an idea for a big finished box set. Yeah. The Doctor going around visiting his companions. Obviously, we've got 10th Doctor Classic Companions on the way. Uh, Who knows where it's set? Is it set in there? Who knows? Well, I do.
2: I wonder whether he landed on the the space freighter and just opened the door and shouted, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, and then just (laughs) dematerialises (laughs) Adro.
1: Boom. (laughs) Right, let's head across Scotland as we go from just outside Glasgow, where I am, to the heart of beautiful Edinburgh, and speak with Roy Gill. He's got the right stuff baby
4: hello i'm roy gill and i was the writer of unit dating for the eighth doctor adventures as part of stranded
1: roy welcome to pieces of eighth
4: hello nice it's... to be on pieces of eight joining the ne- the next part of the kenny podcast family <laughs>
1: <laughs> you make it sound like an empire we never did get you on scottish she's
4: empire though isn't it well, yeah,
1: slowly but surely, power, taking over. power
4: of three is multiplying by the power of three and uh, <laughs> branching outwards.
1: <laughs> yep. Power of three by the power of three, subtract one.
4: Yeah. Uh.
1: Something like that. Anyway, it's, it's lovely to have you on because I know you don't do a lot of podcasts. Well, in fact, you don't do any apart from chat with me, so it's always a joy to chat with our Roy. Uh-huh. So Roy, let's turn the clock back to 1996. What do you recall about Paul McGann okay. being cast as the Doctor?
4: Um, I think I remember I'm trying to remember where I, I first I think it was maybe I, I think I saw it in the newspaper probably my my, my dad's a, a big newspaper reader so I think I probably saw it there and I, I definitely knew his name a friend of ours actually Fraser I remember had really pushed Withnail and I on me as one of his favorite films ever. And yep. so I was very aware of Paul McGann from Nail and I. And also I'd, I'd seen, you know, I think things like maybe a bit of The Monocony or something, but I definitely I definitely knew who it was. and I was quite excited by the, the casting choice. And then I think the next thing would be seeing that, that shot of him on the cover of Doctor Who magazine with his head kind of shaved, holding the key to time. And I remember at the time kind of thinking, God, that's a bit of a bold look. <laughs> and now it looks it looks strikingly modern now. But at the time, you know, nineties was quite a long hair time, you know. And I, I don't know, the way he ended up, up in the movie was probably closer to my idea of the doctor at, at the time. So that would probably be where I first saw him. And and weirdly enough, it all seemed to happen really quite quickly, didn't it? You know, we we heard about it and then it was shot, and then it felt like it was on you probably know the dates better than me, but it, it wasn't like it wasn't like say when Doctor Who came back with Russell T Davies, and we probably heard about the casting and Chris and Billy about a year before it was actually on telly. It seemed once the news there, it seemed to happen quite quickly. Am I am I right in that? You are way? right, right. You're very so good. long
1: ago. <laughs> it was announced in the early January, and it was on uh-huh. air or well, it was out on video on May the twenty second in the UK and right. then it was on, oh, the dates. on May You're the 22nd. Well uh-huh. Uh-huh. it's that is, uh, quick. It's, it is quick. Well because May the 22nd is my pal Jonathan's birthday and that's how I remember missing his piss up because I uh, came through to Edinburgh to get the video release uh-huh. and I remember May uh-huh. the 27th because it was just five days later and that's when uh, Louisa first came into the Edinburgh Doctor group so there we go. Uh, there's a there Louisa, now Dunlop, married to Walter Dunlop, another of our friends. So there we go. Hello, Walter and Louisa, if you're listening. How yes. radio of if me. How local? why not? Exactly. Um, quite. Um, so first time you saw the TV movie, I don't remember you joining us in the queue. Am I wrong in remembering or am I misremembering? No,
4: I wasn't. I was not in the queue. I knew about the midnight opening and I did come through to... I was in I was living in Stirling at the time. I, I, I did come through with my friend Ian to get it. But and this now seems ridiculous, but you know, I I mean I was also I was on the internet in the world in nineteen ninety-six, but news travelled a bit slower in those mm-hmm. days. So the original video release, it was scheduled and then delayed because of the Dunblane tragedy. I don't think we necessarily knew the reason until some time later but that's what it was because they re-edited it to take out some of the violent content as, a, as con- a lot of concerns of that so it was delayed and I, I remember coming through uh, and we were both hugely excited and then it wasn't going to be out and uh, I, think, I think when it was then I, it was pushed back by a few weeks wasn't it? It was um, a couple of weeks, 10 days, something more. like that, yeah and when it came to the actual release day, I had uh, an English exam that day. And so it's burned into my memory. So my, my pal Ian, same one who'd come through to Edinburgh with me to get tape and we couldn't, he went into town in Stirling that day to get it. And I vividly remember this, this, this exam sitting through it and not really, <laughs> because I was about to see new Doctor Who and getting back. And uh watching it with he watching it with him. And then I think he had some uh, he was he was on different subjects to me. He he had uh he we we watched it together and then he went away and I just ran the tape and watched it again, of course, you know. <laughs> and uh yes, that'd be when I that'd be when I first saw it. And I remember, you know, there was a lot of buzz about it. I mean I obviously watched it again when it weren't out on telly and I remember a lot of my friends including people who were not fans were watching because they were all intrigued about it and been off air for, for so long and it was a big thing that it was coming back. I think actually now as well um, I remember seeing a little trailer, there was a little teaser trailer for a new season in BBC One which had that little clip of him in the park grabbing Grace and going, oh, I am the Doctor! I just oh, these little fragments of, of something coming back to life—so exciting. And I remember, I mean, watching it for the first time, I was—I was probably, you know, I was. The, the direction was so good; it really grabbed me. It was on such a big scale. I admit that it was probably more American than I was expecting, but what I think it got apart from a lot of the casting and the direction, a lot of the design and so on, one of the things I think got very right was the tone. It's a big action comedy adventure, you know, and there's a lot of warmth and energy in it. And there was so much science fiction out at that time that was so
3: completely
4: lacking in any humour. I mean, the big show at the time, science fiction-wise, was The X-Files. And I guess we were also still kind of in next-gen era. And although there are things about those shows that are great, they are not comedy shows. And Doctor Who's not a comedy show, but it, it to be good Doctor Who, you need to have a little bit of spark to it. And that was one of the things I got of it. You know, Paul bounced really well of Daphne Ashbrook. It bounced really well of Eric Roberts. And there's a lot of lines in there which have a humour... To them, that is very, very, very Doctor Who. Even though a lot of, you know, even though the setting and the and the visuals seemed very new and strange at the time, the tone was just right. I think, and uh, yeah, and so I was instantly very excited and 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 very sad when it didn't look like we were going to get any more, as we didn't for a while yeah, until a bit... books came and then the big finish came and. And suddenly we had a lot of Paul McGann, which is great.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was just say, spin on five years and Paul McGann's back in the park for Big Finish. And of course, you were following pretty much from the word go, weren't you?
4: Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I, I was there from the start, very, very excited that it was back and real, you know, in a tangible in some kind of way. I mean, I had read a number of the novels and really enjoyed them. But there's something different about it being performed, I think it, it gave it a it actually really felt like a continuation of his story, I think. and uh, I was following following his adventures and big finish from star.
1: So it must have been a real surprise and delight to borrow a phrase from JNT that <laughs> you got the email from Matt Fittinson saying, The time is now. Would you like to come and write for the 8th Doctor and join the ongoing team with Stranded?
4: Yeah, yeah. He sent I think, I mean I wasn't I wasn't involved when when it was being, that this run was being set up. I don't know if that was, I don't know if I maybe wasn't on their radar at that point or if maybe, I think it actually took quite a while to come together. I'm not sure, maybe they were planning when they were still involved. You need to speak to Matt about that. But they clearly had this episode earmarked for me, which is great. And Matt had asked me if I was interested, which, which of course I absolutely was. And he had sent me the, the scripts for series one of Stranded, which I read and loved. I mean, I, I just thought it was such a brilliant world. And, you know, this this kind of Tales of the City, This Is Us type, world with all these diverse characters in the, in this house and it, it just seemed to bring really it was such an interesting focus to bring to to Doctor Who and I thought the, the scripts that first run were just fantastic and I, it was very vivid that world and I was quite very happy to, to jump in on that so it was great yeah.
1: Were you given much of a brief for this one or were you able to pitch what the story pretty much became?
4: It was quite a minimal brief, which is fine. Just went back and had a look at that today. And it was basically, I mean, I I, I, quite often what the case is is you get, once they know you've asked what writers might be involved in a particular series, you might get a sort of very brief kind of outline and it might be literally two sentences per story. And I think mine basically said that Ron and Tony would reveal to Liv and Helen their connection to UNIT, because that had been planned from the start that they, you know, this, this hints dropped in in series one that they have connection to UNIT. And the Doctor and Andy would go back in time and meet their younger selves at UNIT and would have a Brigadier as well. And that was basically it. And I think actually the other thing which I have to give Matt the credit for is I have, the title is not mine, the title is Matt's, it was simply UNIT Dating. And it's quite interesting because the titles are sometimes they're basically placeholders at this stage. And he's, Matt's always up for you know if you've got a better idea suggested to come up with your own thing. Um, I think, for example, Lisa's one that this this particular set was simply called Family History, so it's like a two-word description. Mine was Unit Dating, and I just thought, oh, I'm having that. You know, there's, that's already perfect. I'm not changing it <laughs> because obviously there's the play on words about what Unit Dating means to Doctor Who fans. It's quite a well-worn joke but i couldn't i couldn't resist it so that was the basic brief and i and i guess what i then did as you always have to do is kind of turn that into a story and so it was a case of looking for you know what's what what are the points of how can i make this exciting how can i make it dynamic Where where are the points of tension i mean the first kind of thing was i was thinking okay so why is the why is the doctor going back i guess starting point is often asking yourself questions so you know why is the doctor going back to unit in the in the 70s I'm just saying 70s here it's quite funny obviously the whole unit dating in, in as you know Kenny and probably most of our listeners though is the ambiguity about when the, the unit stories actually took place and it, it, it's quite funny I, I just re-listened to the episode the other day and we very very carefully throughout the dialogue we never actually say the 1970s, or indeed the 1980s, we we don't say. We just kind of, you know, run and only approximate how long they've been together. And that one there's one point one starts saying, you know, oh, this reminds me of being in a, a London summer in a basement in 19, and then he's interrupted. We never say. And then it's quite funny because we get to the extras on the, on the release, and everyone's just kind of blithely saying, Oh, it was great to go back to the 70s. So all <laughs> the ambiguity was lost. But the intention, we very deliberately kept it out of the dialogue. So, anyway, the, the first kind of question I was saying to myself is why, why is he going back? And I knew that in series. You know he's kind of the TARDIS is broken he's recovering it slowly in this series he can travel a bit so I'm thinking so he's trying to help repair the TARDIS so he I had this idea that he goes back and he's trying to steal technology from himself that seemed quite a Doctor Who-ish thing to do you know so it was going to take place during the third Doctor's run, where he's trying to fix the TARDIS anyway and then I was thinking well the two stories they need to interact so something that's happening in the past has to impact on what's happening in the present I had this notion that you know in a, in a romantic comedy, one of the most important parts is the point where the two characters come together. And then the next kind of really important point is, you know, how they become, they come stay together forever. We know with Ron and Tony that they've been together for a very, very long time. So the interest the really interesting part is how they, they, they find each other. So that was where I started to think, I'm going to maybe do this as a time loop so we can keep on seeing that opening moment play out in different ways, and that also gave, I guess, an urgency to what's happening in in the present. And Ron and Tony revealing their history to Liv and Helen because what's happening in the past is having a direct knock on to what's happening in the present, and that connect the two time zones. And I thought that was a, that was a good source of energy for it as well.
1: Yeah, um, and I think there's some brilliant stuff, particularly the, you mentioned the comedy of it and the fact that Joe Grant uh, giving the soldiers the eye and I just, yes, you're obviously thinking yes, it's a J-O-E yes, rather than Joe for yeah, Josephine. Yeah, yeah. And I think that kind yes. of stuff, it still makes me laugh, even though I know it's there, but it's just the the whole, uh-huh, you could almost like imagine exclamation marks coming out the head if it was a cartoon.
4: Yes, and uh, Tom Price is really good at that kind of comedy as well because his character is very eager but not necessarily always, you know, he, he's sometimes a little bit, a little bit behind the mark or something, but he's very eager and lovely with it. And but he's, he 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 plays it with a lovely innocence, you know. You can totally believe, well, I hope you can totally believe that he's fallen quite innocently into this this Joe Grant trap. And I, I love also there's this the there's this, this knowledge that the doctor, who's obviously a the thing about Paul McGann's doctor actually is on the surface, he's this very charming guy. And his charm allows him to get away with being devious and he's devious all the time and there's a little kind of mischievous thing there earlier on where Andy's given that he's given the unit pass and he kind of says like, "Oh Joe Grant, what if I don't look anything like him?" And the doctor just kind of says, "Well, that's okay, I don't look anything like me either." <laughs> what he doesn't say is, and Joe's a, Joe Grant was a woman and you're a man. And so the, he doesn't explain any of that. He just allows it to fall headlong into it. And that is the doctor's mischievous nature, really. And uh, I, I love that kind of comedy, comedy of misunderstandings, yeah. which I thought you, played beautifully.
1: Yep. You mentioned uh, just writing for, for this doctor. I mean, after years of listening to him and reading about him, mm-hmm. how did it feel to finally come to put words into his mouth?
4: I mean it's great because you have the voice, you have Paul's voice very much in your head and I think an interesting thing is his doctor, he's been playing the part for so long now it has quite rightly evolved so there's a kind of romantic quality to him in the movie and he's quite innocent and puppyish and that kind of thing. Then He turns on the charm whilst he's busy stealing something from your pocket and that kind of thing and the doctor... I think he's allowed to be a little bit moodier now. And one of the whole things about the stranded kind of thing is that, you know, he becomes... He's he's sometimes very unaware of the human things that are going on around him and quite focused on his own agendas and that kind of thing. And that leads to comedy as well. So you're writing it in awareness of where his doctor is is now. And the default voice is quite puppyish. And you have to kind of remember <laughs> he's, he's not just the... These shoes, they fit perfectly, Doctor. He's the, he he's uh, a little bit more experienced, and and you know you have to. see so you hear him now in your head, and uh, I I think I think that's uh, that's good. And I think also being Paul's skill as an actor means when you're listening to it, he won't necessarily play it exactly as you're imagining. Anyway, but he finds a different kind of moment or comedy to different moment to stress or or, or whatever. But yeah. I like his Doctor a great deal. And I do think that kind of charm that masks the slightly tricksterous nature of the Doctor <laughs> is one of the great joys of writing for his character.
1: And how about Liv and Helen? They're two very popular companions mm-hmm. as well.
4: Yes, and two really good actors as well. And very distinct characters. I mean, Liv's got a lovely, dry she's sense of humour and she tends to take charge of scenes quite... Quickly, and uh, you know, there's an interesting kind of tension between Liv and Helen and their friendship and how it develops and so on. And Helen, I'm always aware that she's from the past; she's from the '60s, and she's an academic. And I write her register a little bit differently. She's just a little bit more formal, and her vocabulary is just a sort of slightly more dated. Lives very contemporary, I think, by contrast. And it's good to kind of keep a tension between them. And in this, obviously, Helen, she's sort of. It, there's this interesting thing where she's bonding with with Ron and Tony, and um, she's younger than them. But because she's actually from the past, she's lived through a lot of the same things. So you know, she's she's got a commonality between them, um, which you wouldn't necessarily expect. That's a really nice relationship to explore as well.
1: Let's talk Ron and Tony, who I think yes. both versions of them I just think they're, they're wonderfully played
4: yes I and think the I think, casting was just brilliant yeah and I it think it's really good really good
1: I think what you managed to capture there there was that they're very recognizable as being the same very much the same characters but I think there's that that finding the way particularly with it being during an indeterminate time when it's been set in the past when mm-hmm. obviously particularly with them with gay relationships in the military was something that yeah. we're not allowed. But then, of course, we get the brigadier who's couldn't give a damn. As long as the job's being done, he doesn't care what his yes. what his yes. team got to him. And it's a lovely a lovely dynamic that they have. And the way you wrote it was, I think, it was very sensitive.
4: Thank you. I was quite taken. It, this is probably one of the stories that I've had the most feedback on from listeners. Uh, I mean, I had loads and loads of messages about this on on, on Twitter. And one of the things people seemed to really see zero in on was the Brigadier's response to discovering this relationship, burgeoning relationship in, 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 his, in the ranks of his command and his support for it. And I was slightly taken aback how much that seems to have meant to people, and I suppose it's because the Brigadier is this character which we've known for so long, and he is, you know, he's this, I don't know, I I was almost going to say that he's almost a bit of a father figure, you know, and that kind of approval Mm -hmm. is something that does actually mean a lot to a lot of people, particularly people who might not have had that support in their own lives, really. So seeing it presented, I think, can be quite meaningful. And it's very lovely to hear when that does mean something to people and it was something, it was an interesting tension to strike writing this because Stranded as a series quite deliberately set out to present a diverse group of characters and bring that into the world of Doctor Who. And When you go back into the past, You are entering less tolerant times and there's a really interesting tension there as a writer whereby you don't want to for something which is hope actually you want to send out a positive message but you don't want to completely ignore the truth of the past either so i guess the balance i kind of struck was that tony is kind of you know he he is. He does say it a couple of times. You know, when he, when people speak to him, he kind of says, you know, military organizations not necessarily the most progressive. So he's aware that he's he, at the start. He thinks he probably isn't going to fit into this place. He doesn't think he's made the right choice, and that kind of thing. He's a bit sensitive about these kind of things. And I think it was important to acknowledge that, and also the brigadier's acceptance. He's slightly in that kind of older generation kind of way. He's very well-meaning about it and he's not through, but just takes him a couple of moments to to find the right words. He's not instantly there. You know, universe you know, you know, has faced stranger things in it's time, you know, <laughs> and, I, and I, I think the thing is, you know, a lot of what we know about the character, the Brigadier, I mean, I think he's brilliantly played now and really sensitively played now by John Colshaw, but a lot of what we know of him and our feelings towards him come from Nicholas Courtney gave that character i mean he could have been this pompous military bore and he isn't he's got such warmth and such a humor and irony to him and we know that nicholas courtney as a person from all kinds of anecdotes and stories would have had no problem whatsoever with gay and bisexual people and i think that meant that i had no hesitation in thinking that the brigadier too would embody those values you know I think when it comes down to he's basically a decent person and it might be new information to him but, you know, as long as the job's done what does it matter? He doesn't care. He's he's totally fine with it. And it, may, it allowed me to revisit the whole old Liberty Hall joke with the <laughs> doctors as well. So, you know, just keep going. <laughs>
1: yeah. I also liked, like, we've got the song connecting the two time zones as well, oh, which yeah, was a nice yeah, yeah. touch.
4: Uh-huh. The song was in the script in that, I mean, I think when it comes to time loops, the trope definer is obviously Groundhog Day. And quite a few shows and films and movies since then have also used a sort of song as a reset point. And I thought about that. And I thought the thing is, this is happening in audio and you do need to kind of cue that you're looping. And then I kind of, I think that actually I then started to work through the logical implications. And so we've got a song playing and it's on a radio. And the radio became the method to connect between the past and the present. And what I, I, I was quite happy with this notion, this slightly romantic notion at the end that the reason the doctor fixes the radio and because he's the doctor, he doesn't do it perfectly. He fixes it and he fixes it to only ever play songs for one year, so it becomes kind of emblematic of their relationship and the start of the story. I actually, it was interesting hearing the final thing. I think I'd stripped the song to be more present than it was, because um, it, it kind of in the plot, you know, they look back and you get a snatch of the song and then the radio goes bang and then you get the static coming through that's the message from the future. And that's the loop point. Um, and I don't know if they used it as much as I thought they were going to, and that may be the case that, you know, maybe it didn't work in the edit or whatever, but what I did get and I really wasn't expecting I mean, I was hoping for, but I didn't actually expect was that Benji Clifford went the extra mile and actually wrote something new for it, which I I was just, I I loved it. I really loved the way that it it, it came in at the end and it, it fitted with the themes of the piece and tied it together. And I was very grateful that he went the extra mile and created something rather than just using a piece of stock music. And that was a really lovely part of the story.
1: You mentioned a couple of minutes ago about the reaction to the story from mm. fans reaching out and seeing it, how much it meant to them and it's still one of my, my favourite stories in the Stranded arc. How do you look back on it now? It's obviously it's a wee while since it came out and how do you feel about it? Is it everything you wanted it to be?
4: Yes, I would say so. I'm very happy with it. I mean, I thought it was cast really well and I thought it was it came together really well. I mean, it was one of these ones where because the time, you know, you're, you're, it was a very, it was a tricky one to write because the time zones do connect. I mean, usually in the story, you are following more than one strand, but the points you cut between each strand, between each story strand, you can just kind of figure out as you go along. But in this, because the actions in one time zone impact on the other, it had to be very tightly plotted. So it was quite a it was quite a complex one to write, and there's this, I think there's quite a a sense of satisfaction in knowing if that has has worked technically and I think what's also nice is that it's interesting really um hearing that different moments of it that seem to mean, meant things to people I mean one as I was saying earlier that people talk a lot about the moment where the brigadier expresses his support I think. The scene where Helen talks about her brother seems to have hit a chord with a lot of people as well, and the scene which I know when I was was writing it, I remember Matt speaking to me about as well, is the Doctor and the Brigadier together because, you know, we're going back into the past. I couldn't change lore exactly, but weirdly enough, the fact had created this circumstance where things get erased, meant the Doctor can kind of say things that he wouldn't normally say. And he's able to kind of ex- express his real warmth of feeling towards the brigadier. You know, I, I, it was, I it was lovely to hear that played out. You know, I I just kind of forgot I wasn't listening to Nicholas Courtney and Paul McGann, and thought, you know, it, it felt really good to me to hear that play out.
1: Yeah, and of course we do. As should you mentioned,
4: that's about my own writing. Should I? <laughs> <laughs> I did really, I did like that moment. <laughs> no,
1: you're allowed to be proud of your work, Roy. There is nothing wrong with that. It's <laughs> a lot of people will not um, listen back to this stuff, but I know I think it's it's fantastic. And just as you mentioned Helen's brother Albert there, just that's yes. hearing that absolutely broke my heart. You just, and it's one of those things that in the twenty first century, you know, as a father with a, a gay child, it's you know, I don't I couldn't care less as long as she's happy. And that's what, you know, completely embraced that and and, it, and, it, and that bit does break my heart even now when I listen to it again.
4: It was so beautifully played. And it. I have to say, that's one of these things where Albert, the, the, the brother, that's something which arose from a conversation I had uh, with David Richardson. And he said that he'd always had this notion that maybe Helen had had a brother who was gay and that this might be the source of her connection to Ron and Tony. And when he said that, my head kind of lit up and I thought, this is a really strong idea. And I went away and I wrote the scene between them at the end. And do you know, it's funny, it went down, it went down on the page very quickly and it probably changed not at all in editing and I think it's probably one of the best scenes in it, maybe because there's a truth to it, really. I mean, I love Nicola's delivery of, you know, when they're, when they're kind of saying, you know, Hel- Helen's kind of saying, you know, not everything's easy to say, and Nicola kind of says, well, maybe it should be. And I think there's a whole kind of world there about the things that we keep quiet and the things we do or don't feel we can talk about to our friends and our family and how important it is and the the importance of this kind of character we haven't heard about before. The other stranded episode I wrote, Keys of Baker Street, as well. That was already in my mind when I wrote that. And so, when Helen is talking to Tony in that in that scene, again the brother comes up again because it's still on her mind and it's been this big thing for her. And I was so there's a through line there from Unit you know, Dating to Keys of Baker Street.
1: But uh, Roy, you mentioned there, despite the importance of friends and family, and just to put it on the record, during lockdown we spoke a hell of a lot, and uh, yes, and and you were a great support to me, and it was always lovely to chat, and again today it's been lovely to chat, so it's always a joy to talk to one of my best mates.
4: So thank you for coming on the podcast. And to you, Kelly, it was great to speak to you. Happy to talk anytime. So there we
1: go. How did you find the depiction of the younger Ron and Tony's relationship, especially you know, being in the military and the brigadier's reaction to it? Because I think that is one of the most affirming scenes across the whole of Stranded for me. The fact that the brigadier is so accepting. Yeah, I, th- I think the re- the
2: relationship of the younger Ron and Tony is actually what the, the story is about. It's about two people who are tentatively finding their way towards um, being together. And it's lovely then to see, we've already seen the payoff is that they're they're together 40 odd years later, but this is the sort of start of that story. And in the wider context of Stranded, you know, you've got um, Liv and Tanya are also sort of tentatively finding their way towards each other. So I think it it sort of encapsulates a wider storyline that's happening across Stranded. And I think, you know, it prompts something in Helen as well, who's not always a character that has been particularly open about her own sort of feelings or her own family background. And I think that prompts Helen to open up about the brother that was presumably caught cottaging um, and sent to prison and and the the sort of rift that caused in the family and perhaps Although she she doesn't talk about it, perhaps you know Helen um, is also struggling with sort of same sex attraction kind of thing. So I think I think there's a a really charming, sweet, real sort of relationship at the heart of it of two two people who are they're not even sort of it's not particularly flirtatious. It's just it's very tentative, and and two people who are who, who live in a of society and are in jobs where it's difficult you you have to be very discreet you'd have to kind of be absolutely sure of your ground before you showed your hand kind of thing and and, you know they're they're just both trying to work out is this something is it is it not but i can't really ask because you know like if i ask and i've got it wrong i could be you know i could be fired so in that context you know the brigadier's reaction you're right. It's very, very affirming, and I think, you know, I, th- I think it's it's what, as fans, we would want the brigadier to be, to be like. Whether whether it whether it's likely that in the seventies a senior military officer would actually have had that reaction or not, I, I think sort of questionable. But the reality is that's what we we want from the brigadier. He's such an important character.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, when he sort of, sort of says not 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 at work, but what
1: you do outside of work, you know, enjoy yourself. Yeah, I think is really sweet. Yeah, I think the fact that we know that, and something that Roy mentioned was the fact that Nick Courtney was very friendly towards the LGBTQ plus community, yeah. and I think that's probably you'd like to think those values would be in the Brig as well. So yeah. I think that's I think it's wonder I think it's beautifully written that bit by Roy, and I think it's sensitively done and yeah, I'd like to say it just shows that units was always a forward progressive organization. After all, you just need to look at Bambera, black woman in power in the the nineties, probably in power, in charge of units, probably the better way to word it, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. But no, I think it was great. I thought it was it was really well done. And um in fact something else that Roy mentioned was that a lot of people when they've come out, they've not had accepting parents and having a figure like the brigadier Who's there? A figure of authority and somebody we can all look up to and respect. I think that's a great thing. When as as the father of a of a gay child, and then I'm, you know, I'd like to think that, you know, been accepting and yeah, fingers crossed that, that's the way that more people will be as we go forward with each passing day, month, year. Yeah. yeah. There we go. We've got all serious there. It's not like <laughs> us at all, is it? <laughs> so I think um, something that.
2: Roy mentioned when he was talking was the song which accompanies the really lovely scenes um, between uh, Ron and Tony, which is in the script and it was written and performed by Benji Clifford. When the song sort of plays, for for a moment, I was sort of hoping that because it's a lovely song, so it's not a comment on the song, I was just hoping in my fan brain that we were going to get a glimpse of The Lonely Ones from Horror of glam rock, I thought that would be a sort of hilarious little callback to, brilliant, um, to the Lucy Miller um, story, but we didn't, we got a, a beautiful different song written and performed by Benji Clifford, who did the story Sound Design, and I think we're going to hear from him
0: now. My name is Benji Clifford, I'm a sound designer, a musician, and one half of the Big Finish podcast.
1: Hello Benji, welcome to another podcast, Pieces of Eight. <laughs>
0: Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Yes, yeah, so you've got a much nicer studio than ours, that's for sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is um, my home office, newly redecorated, so we've got work computer to my right and on my Doctor Who tats to my left. Well, not all of it, just a little bit of it. With loads of books and figurines and action figures and, yeah, it's lots of Doctor Who fun. But oh, delighted Lord. to have you on, Benji. It's a joy to have a new person joining the family and... Maybe I could start by asking you, what are your earliest memories of The Eighth Doctor? My earliest memories?
0: Good question. Um, Well, weirdly enough, my earliest memory, my encounter with, I suppose, the TV movie, was when I was... um, There used to be a place in town called Old and Gold. And uh, I I just used to go down there at any opportunity to see if people had dropped off old Doctor Who VHSs and things like that. Because, you know, you couldn't really... I could never see them in shops that when they were new so I popped in there used to any anything they had even if I'd already had a copy of it I'd just grab it I just wanted it I was like, I have to have that and I came across the TV movie with the the great picture of Paul McGann with the candle I just love that shot and uh, I was really excited because at that time when Doctor Who for me when I encountered Doctor Who it, it was the wilderness years that they as they called it, it wasn't yep. on the telly so for me it was all a bit of a mystery and the internet was in its infancy so I was I had books and I had things with with the pictures of the various doctors, but I hadn't encountered them. So it was still like finding a tape or watching UK gold, which had, you know, old episodes. To, yep. to see that it was like a real excitement being like, oh, they brought on the, you know, that suddenly we, we've got the seventh doctor coming out now. We, I can finally see that. Or occasionally coming across like an old second doctor thing and 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 thinking, God, goodness, I get to, I actually get to see Patrick Troughton doing his thing and so that was my first encounter was was finding that VHS watching the tv movie thinking it was incredible and feeling slightly just baffled by the fact that it hadn't been picked up to actually to to become a, a full you know series so of course discovering Big Finish and oh, I'm trying to think of my first Eighth Doctor story I think it might have been Time of the Daleks actually was when I got round to that one which I was talking to Nick about the other day and laughing about Daleks and Shakespeare and and, and all of that. And from there on, I I went right back and I used to go to to Forbidden Planet in London and just pick up as many CDs as I could really and and just get on that bandwagon. I loved it. I I loved the mystery behind it all.
1: Yeah, there must have been a real joy then when you were given your first commission to work on one with Mr. McGann absolutely and in a way i was really
0: happy that it it was the eighth doctor because it kind of feels like that's it's like the big finish doctor in a way it's certainly you know it's the first doctor i guess that we we really made our own and so to to be asked to do that it felt very much like if you're going to do a doctor who for for big finish it's quite nice to do the real core what big finish is all about and so jumping on i started with doom coalition too uh, not doing coalition one. So I had to, it was, I had to sort of carry that one on and I've, I've not stopped. I've been doing pretty much all of the eighth doctor offerings ever since and having a blast.
1: Fantastic. Cause I think it really comes across having that sort of continuity of team and that must be quite good for yourself as well. The fact you're doing that and you've got Jamie on music.
0: It is. It's, you know, we, we all know I think we've we've developed a kind of well-oiled machine. We know exactly what everybody wants. I mean, Ken Bentley uh, was the first director that I worked with at Big Finish, and so I know him really well. I, I he in a way the way in which I work is kind of moulded by his standards and what he wants because. When I first started I was new to, to the world of audio drama I you know I'd been to university to do telly stuff and I was doing audio for fun just my own thing but working kind of in a more secure well established professional environment wasn't something that I'd necessarily done before so Ken sort of told me what he wanted to do how he wanted to do it and so yeah I think we we've, we've we've come to kind of just become this this machine and we all really care about it and I think it helps to helps to have worked on it for an extended amount of time, because you can get that continuity right. You can have those things that you feature before and pull them back in. And it's, it's nice to be able to, to keep that going.
1: Yeah. So what's your process when you get a script? Is it a case of go through it, read it first time and then go back, start again and then do a markup for what you need and thinking, what do I need, what I've already got?
0: well i never thought that i would ever be like this but i i, I since working in audio i've become i've got really into spreadsheets <laughs> I, the, the kid in me that hate hated maths uh would be looking at me like what are you doing um but i i go through the script and i the first things first is i mark every single scene on a spreadsheet so i say i at the location interior exterior and i like to know i like to see and i i have them all in blocks so i say you know like A block is like one location. So like in the TARDIS, that would be A. So that way then I know that if I've got five TARDIS scenes, they're all like kind of logged together. So I I kind of go through it that way. And if I come across anything in the script that I think that's going to be a real challenge, or that's going to need some stuff recorded, especially then I'll I'll note it down. And it's nice because my mind can get kind of ticking over of what I want to do. And, you know, it's, it's all those things. I, I love, I love exploring the TARDIS. I think that's one of my favorite things because I'm such a nerd. I <laughs> I love adding in all the like little nods to previous incarnations in there mm-hmm. and, and all things like that. So it's really it's, it's about going through it and just working it all out. And then I just hit the ground running and, and see where, where I get and see where my imagination takes me. It's just a it's a wonderful process to just The worst thing is when you leave all the hard scenes until the end and then you have a (laughs) panic. I've learned not to do that now.
1: (laughs) Yeah, intersperse, do a hard one, then reward yourself with an easier one. That sounds like a good plan to me. That's it. That's it. So when you get through a script like unit dating, the fact that it's a period piece, does that fill your heart with joy or does it make you go, oh, no, I need to find older sounds to go in there?
0: Well, Kenny, you know me. Um, but your your listeners might not but I I love anything to do with the past it's just Mm -hmm. my thing you know it's I have a real attention to detail when it comes to the past because it means so much to me to like kind of portray it sort of well and with this it's like a love letter to like my favorite time in Doctor Who which is the third Doctor unit stuff it's like my favorite that's what that that was really what kind of brought me into Doctor Who and so It was, you know, it was just lovely to go through there. And even little things like, um, you know, this is the level of detail I go into sometimes. It's like going into old episodes and lifting sounds, lifting the sound of the background sounds of what those unit labs sounded like. It's it's unnecessary. But I think for me and I think sometimes for like the fans, I know there are people out there like me who noticed little details. Mm -hmm. I think it's so nice to pepper little things in for people to stop and say, oh, Oh, that's quite. I recognise that. Um, but doing the past to me is just—it's just the just joy. I love it. I—I I, I just love that. And it—it it, it takes me to somewhere I wish I could have been. I suppose is the answer.
1: Yeah, I suppose with this one, when you've got sort of timey-wimey sounds and ogrod smashing through the place and <laughs> stuff going on in two different time zones, that it must have been a bit of a challenge, but a fun one.
0: Oh, definitely. I remember the, the ogre on smashing into the lab scenes. It was, quite, it was quite difficult trying to get that right. I mean, it's the hardest thing is when you have scenes that kind of, when you revisit the same scene kind of over and over again, but things have changed. It's really hard to sometimes get the details to perfectly match up as they would have been. But um, with things like that, it's always a challenge, but it's it's part of the fun. And, and it's so nice when you do get to the end of like a long day of working on a scene, because sometimes scenes can just take such a long time and you you really go through the motions of getting tired and but then when you get to that end thing and you've got an Ogron smashing up a, a lab and people whizzing in and out of time and suddenly you know people outside of the scene looking onwards for example at what's you know all these things uh once you get there and it's completed you think oh i'm so i've done it i've done it and it sounds all right and it you know you don't there's nothing worse than getting to the end and feeling like it's just not what you wanted so this was a lovely story and it was really nice to kind of get to the end point and feel good about it
1: yeah because in our episodes where we've covered bbc books i've done some sound design up to some readings and oh my god just with one just taking one tiny wee cut and everything's thrown out of sync so yes to be able to lock it in place that's. What you do, it definitely, I have so much more respect for you. That already did have plenty, but since doing these wee bits of sound, saying, oh my God, yes, much, much (laughs) kudos to you, Benji. So I suppose the biggie with this one was the fact that there's a 1970s-style glam rock song in there. (laughs) Maybe maybe to tell us a wee bit about your your love of music in that period and how you came to do this one. I, I
0: just love, I love everything about that time. And I love, especially with the glam rock songs, i've got my friend james and i where we sort of started this project a while back called ziggy zigford and the zigsters uh which was born out of um out of us just messing around writing sort of music and he's got a tape studio like a real old school reel to reel all his gear is from sort of the 70s you know a lot of it a bit of the 80s in there but it's part of it kind of started with us just writing old music and um and doing stuff that way and we've actually we've written an album it's hopefully ready to go soon but all of that we it it really felt like i spent some days in the 70s with those records because we'd sit in there and do we, we we insisted that if you smoked whilst playing the music it somehow makes it sound more 70s but the, so i so i was already kind of well well versed in in doing the glam rock thing this wasn't recorded there though because i didn't you know i didn't have the time to whip over there and do this so when i got the got the memo with this that there's going to be this song in it i don't think anybody'd really thought oh we'll get benji to do that song i think it was just a case of it was in there and i just thought to myself because it's like a it's a bit it was a bit cheeky, if I'm honest, because I'm not down to do the music as Jamie is down to do the music, but I kind of thought Jamie's doing music accompanying the episode, but this is very much set inside the world of the piece is in terms of diegetic and non diegetic music as the technical terms. So I just thought, oh, I'm just going to do it. And if he tells me off, I'll just apologise because I really want to do it. And so I just thought, I tried to think of a sort of, you know, those the sort of time and a song that they were both, you know, is very of that time and grounded in that world. And also a song that they would look back fondly on. And it's kind of, you know, and I, of course, incorporating the Doctor Who thing. So it was, the, you know, the chorus is the Wizards of the Universe, which I thought is very Mark Bolan. Because mm-hmm. the type of thing, you know, he, he the way he talked, he was all about Tolkien and, you know, it's all wizards and King Arthur's round table. And he was all very kind of wispy like that, the way in which he used to speak about things. And so I thought the wizards of the universe sounds like quite a, a Bolan-esque kind of thing that he would sing. And so I just had such a nice time kind of writing that. And I didn't expect, I really didn't expect so many people to, to pick up on it. I suppose it's hard not to when it's repeated constantly through the episode, (laughs) (laughs) you know, but um, I'm just really pleased that people liked it.
1: Yeah. Well, Roy as the writer of it, he absolutely adored it. So he was overjoyed with the way it turned out. So, You've made a, another Scottish person very happy.
0: <laughs> well, he did such a lovely job on the script, you know, and it's it's whenever you receive scripts, you have some that you love and some that you, you don't like as much, some that make you groan because of the what you've got to do and what you've got to achieve, and others which you think, oh, this is going to be so nice to do. And when you get something like this, um, which is really heartfelt at times as well, and it's it tugs at your heartstrings, it really plays with the nostalgia factor of kind of, you know, why we love Doctor Who. And it's all about, it's kind of a celebration of old Doctor Who, a celebration of love, of pride, of of just of the whole era, really, as well. And it's just, it was such a a lovely script. He did such a great job.
1: I agree. Absolutely agree.
0: Brilliant. Benji, thank you so much. It's a joy. Thank you so much, Kenny. Thanks Thanks for having me. And
1: we'll hopefully speak again very soon. Yes, I do hope so. Take care. Thank you very much, Benji. And there we go that's some of the highlights from unit dating and all in all I think it's a real highlight not only of set two but I think across the four box sets it's definitely one of the best and I'm not just saying that because Roy's my pal
2: and that also time up for this week's episode of Pieces of Eight
1: and I'm actually going to tell you what's going to be in next week's episode now, because originally when we started chatting, I didn't have anything confirmed, but I now have it confirmed. So, Matt, you will remember travelling back to 2007 and Doctor Who was on BBC Radio 7 every week on Sunday nights with Paul McGann and Sheridan Smith. As the Doctor Who
2: we banned at that point. I don't think I was allowed to. <laughs>
1: I've already, i already blown that at the
2: top of the episode. I was very old in 2007. I do remember
1: that. Yeah, and of course, once those episodes finished broadcasting, they were followed up by their own making of episodes, and we series called Beyond the Vortex, and that ran for two series. And of course, Beyond the Vortex has never been repeated or is not available to purchase anywhere. So we are going to be sharing them next week, all eight episodes of series one. And we'll have a wee chat with Martin Montague, who was the producer and the interviewer who put these packages together. And these, I should point out, are copyright BBC, but we're sharing them just to get them out there into the wide world. And we're not infringing their copyrights because we completely respect and love the BBC, don't we? We do. We love you, the BBC. Yes, especially Mr Russell T and his bad wolf people because you're lovely. And we love our big Finnish people too as well. But there we go. So until next week, I've been Kenny Smith and Becca. We are still thinking of you and missing you. And I'm sure you'll be back with us next week. Yeah, miss you, Becca. I've been Matt Michael standing in for you. You are a lot taller than Becca though. I'm just sitting on a higher chair. Oh, that's true. But yes, it's been lovely to see you again, Matt, and we'll be <laughs> back very soon. So, to play us out, it's Ziggy Zigford and the Zigsters with Wizards of the Universe. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.
3: like starlight you move like the moon and all of the sun your eyes are like moonlight the universe tells me that you are and I shimmer You move like the moon and all of the sun Your smile makes me glimmer The universe tells me that you are the